Welcome back to the second part of our look at the rise of communism in the Cold War. Uh, we're going to be taking a look now at what the programs look like in these communist countries to be able to really change the society and set up these new states and how they tried to fix the issues that were going on in their society before the revolutions happened. Uh, so, a couple things just as a refresher. Uh, the Russians revolt in the uh, late 1910s uh, during World War One, and that finally finishes in 1922-1923. And uh, although that revolution was led by Lenin, uh, we're going to see Stalin have more of an impact on these governmental programs early on. And then uh, Mao is going to be leading the communist revolution in China. And uh, we're going to see him really implement these programs in the 50s and 60s. Stalin's going to be doing this about 30 years before that in the 20s and 30s. Now, the biggest thing that these two new states had to do was to shift the focus of uh, what people uh, wanted or what people believed was the important thing. And so they tried to shift the value to selflessness. Whether or not the government actually kind of followed that stuff is a whole other question. Uh, but... Uh, their goal was to push people to believe in being selfless and sacrificing themselves uh, in every way possible for the state and the better good of the people. Now, to do this, you need to have absolute control of everything. So the communists controlled the government. They controlled the arts, the entertainment industries, all that stuff. They controlled the news. They controlled most aspects of people's lives or where they hear everything, the, the judgments and the values and all that stuff, they get flooded with these new ideas. Um, and so that's really how they're able to uh, establish this. And uh, in China, they had an easier time uh, doing this, but uh, in, in changing the aspects of things because they were used to kind of being dictated to by the uh, previous uh, dynasties that have been placed, the Qing, the, the Ming, uh, they're used to that kind of stuff. And some of these ideas go with the ideas found within the Chinese philosophies, although they reject uh, a lot of those ideas. Uh, Mao is not a huge fan of Confucianism, but some of those ideas go into it, especially when we think about uh, the people needing to listen and trust the uh, leader because of those relationships. Uh, so, you see it having an easier time being set up there. However, economically, it's going to be a lot tougher because there was less industrialization there because of the failed industrialization during the uh, Industrial Revolutions. And you're dealing with a much bigger country population-wise. Size-wise, uh, Russia is much bigger. The Soviet Union is much bigger. But population-wise, most of the population is towards and around Moscow, Stalingrad, St. Petersburg, whereas China is spread throughout and it's a lot more people. So that's going to cause problems for China. Um, now, uh, a couple areas that we're going to look at things. One, we're going to look at what it was like for women in these new states because there are changes that happen. I talked about these a little bit in the last one, uh, but we'll try to go through them in a little bit more detail here. Uh, then uh, we're going to look at what it looks like in the countryside in both of these uh, regions and then we're going to look at that industrial development and uh, lastly we'll look at how they try to find enemies to really galvanize the people around and we'll talk about that a little bit more but some of these we've had so we won't have to go into uh, as much details to start with uh, but we'll try to get you a good idea of what's what's going on in these so 
uh, feminism uh, really rises up with communism because if everyone's supposed to be equal, that means also both genders should be equal. And ideally, that's what's going to happen. Unfortunately for women, that's not exactly what happens. Uh, so in the USSR, women are supposed to be fully equal. They can have abortions. Uh, they're allowed to have divorces. Uh, they're, um, they're supposed to get, uh, well, how do I want to phrase that one? Um, oh, that's what I wanted to say. Um, sorry. But uh, when you get pregnant uh, as a woman here, uh, you have time for leave to be able to relax um, and um, help your, well, and take care of the newborn baby. Whereas in a capitalist society, that doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily the case. You might have to be expected to come back uh, in just a short time after uh, given birth. Uh, so uh, there are more rights and stuff like that there. Um, just a couple things to counter that. Uh, it's not always completely equal because women also gain all these rights and are expected to do all these things business-wise and stuff, but they're also um, supposed to raise the whole family and do that stuff still. So they're carrying two, two full-time jobs, whereas the men just have to focus on their, their main job. Now, uh, the one thing that really helped us uh, implement these new ideas and laws and regulations in Russia was the uh, organization of the Zenotdal, uh, which was the women's department. And uh, they helped and schooled or educated women uh, so that they uh, could understand those things, could get jobs uh, that were more than just basic jobs. And they also fought for women's rights. So uh, they really pushed for this stuff. In China, uh, we see similar things of pushing for more equality. Uh, there, there's, there's the marriage law of 1950 um, that uh, brought more equality to marriage. Uh, then uh, they fight um, to uh, kind of change the ideas of Confucianism on it and that the women is subservient to the husband, although they try to fight it, that piece of culture still remains. Uh, very similar to what we see with Russia. Women are going to have more of that responsibility in rearing children than the men will. Um, but they're going to try to get rid of the discrimination against women from these philosophies and whatnot. And uh, there will also be a women's federation set up to try to fight uh, and stand up for these things like the Zenotdal did in the Soviet Union. But it never goes to the same extremes as what the Zenotdal might call for. And uh, so that's kind of life of women. The big thing to take away is there's more of a push to get equality in the workplace and outside of the home, but in the home, women have the main responsibilities. Then uh, in the countryside, so moving into what it's gonna look like in the farm areas, because remember these happen in mainly agricultural societies or agrarian societies, agrarian economies, I should say. Um, they get rid of the landlords. For the most part, they go and kill the landlords. They get rid of all of them. They take that land, redistribute it to the peasants equally, and they um, will uh, allow the peasants to work that land. The, the peasants are expected to work that land uh, as best they can. And so what this is called is the collectivization of land. So it's all brought into the government. Private property is ended. Even though you're allotted land, that is not your specific land. That's not yours to pass on to your family or anything like that. The people that own it are the government. So you have to work that land for the government. And then in return, you're going to get what you need um, from the government to survive.
Again, that's one of the major tenets of communism there. And um, in China, it's not as violent uh, or resisted, and that's due to the um, relationship. Uh, sorry, I should clarify what I'm talking about. The collectivization efforts are not as violent or resisted as we see in uh, Russia or the Soviet Union because the the peasants, the, the serfs, were like, we finally get our own land. We get to have control of our own destiny. And that's really what they wanted. And the Bolsheviks go, no, this is our land. You're working it for us. you got to give all this to us. So you've traded your landlords now for a government that's going to do this for everyone. Um, and so everyone's going to be kind of hosed. Um, in China, because of the relationship that Mao forged with those peasants in the revolution, uh, they will go along with it. And they're happy to see the um, landlords be uh, persecuted for what they had been doing for a long time. And uh, we'll see this culminate in the Great Leap Forward when they try to uh, industrialize the countryside in China. Uh, this was Mao's great idea to improve China's economy. And uh, yeah, that doesn't work out. They don't create really good levels of steel, so it's not really steel worth using. And these foundries in the countryside just don't do a good job. They're not as good as making a, a true uh, large foundry in a city where you have the resources and the manpower to be able to work that for several hours a day instead of a, a farmer trying to balance farming and um, smelting iron and steel and stuff like that. And so because of this lack of balance, food uh, production is going to go down and you're going to have about 20 million people die from this great leap forward. Uh, and this will just be one one of the ticks on uh, Mao Zedong's uh, record here. Uh, by the end of Mao Zedong's life, it's estimated that he's responsible for killing about 50 to 70 million people. Um, and uh, Stalin is estimated to be responsible for killing 20 to 25 million people. Um, through programs like this, uh, the collectivization, uh, we see this, this being the issue in Ukraine with the Holodomor, uh, where the Ukrainians starve. Uh, so... Similar things are going on in both these uh, regions. And uh, the reason um, why this these starvations or, or lots of mass people die is, one, the people don't have the power to really speak up against the government. The government has an absolute authoritarian-type power to dictate to the people what's going to happen, and they control the military to do that. And uh, two... <clears throat> because of how the economy is set up, they control the resources. And so uh, if you're going to resist on your farm and whatnot, they'll send the army in to take you out. And if you complain too much, but you're not going to resist fighting-wise, then they're just going to limit your resources and watch you slowly starve to death, uh, which, again, is what happens really in Ukraine. So that's... Um, and actually, looking at my notes here just again a second time, uh, Holodomor... I'm going to look up real quick how many people die, but uh, my numbers actually I have uh, for dying in the collectivization process in Russia is uh, about 5 million. Uh, just doing a quick Google search here in Holodomor, uh, the starving in Ukraine, uh, it's estimated around 2.4 million, uh, but it could also be upwards of 12 million. I think that 12 million is probably a pretty high stat there, and we've got a major difference there. Uh, just kind of depends on what statistics you're going to be looking for, but I probably wouldn't push it all the way up to that 12 million there on this one. Um, so you have issues here with collectivization. Um, 
I guess one other thing I should add on to that is, is some of the peasants aren't always also the best farmers. They, they might not be using the best practices, which you would see maybe more in a capitalistic um, idea. Uh, or the government dictates what crops you can grow, and so they say we need to grow a lot of this. Well, that could lead to shortages in other crops, and that could lead to starvation as well. Now, that's the countryside. Uh, now, in China, we see the countryside also being industrialized, but uh, in the Soviet Union, um, industrialization really happens in and around the cities. And uh, what they do to guide this industrialization is they set up these things known as five-year plans, which lay out um, what the state-owned enterprises are going to do and focus on and how much they're going to make and, and, and those types of things. So, um, um, so the government's going to dictate all that, and hopefully they guess right. Uh, they're going to uh, get the resources that are needed to go to the industries that they need to go go to, and uh, the goal is that the government will take in all accounts necessary to be able to dictate or to determine how much of uh, whatever product is going to be, need to be made, so that there aren't shortages and stuff like that. Now. Uh, this led to a rapid growth in these economies because the government is funding or throwing in a lot of money to help with the investment and creating these industrialization centers and these factories to do that. So they're going to have a lot of growth early on. Uh, it's also going to lead to a lot of growth in literacy rates because they're going to sponsor education systems to educate the masses, which were not educated under the previous systems. So you're going to see things go up really quickly then. And we're going to see urbanization happen because of the factories in the cities. Uh, we're going to see the countryside, a lot of the resources being taken away from that to support these cities. And uh, we're also going to see with this, uh, with the rise in the economies, well, that, that wealth that comes from it should be shared with everyone. But if you're one of the guys in power, you're looking at all this money and going, you know what, we're doing a lot of work here to do all this. And so we, we should get a little bit of the cut. And so you see a lot of corruption going on. And you see these bureaucrats uh, and technocrats that are running these um, businesses uh, start to skim some off of the top and, and fill their own pockets. So it's not a perfect system by any means. And uh, we we actually see a lot of inequality come about in the Soviet Union. And they just accept it as it's an everyday thing, um, especially with guys like Stalin. I mean, Stalin is, is a very corrupt man, lives a very lavish lifestyle while other people are starving, especially in those areas really hurt by the collectivization efforts. And uh, China, on the other hand, will try to limit those ideas by hearkening back to the revolution and reminding people what they were fighting for. Um, we see that again kind of with the ideas of the Great Leap Forward, uh, that no one can really control everything because it's all done by all the peasants in the countryside, so everyone should benefit. Um, we also see it in the Cultural Revolution where anyone that has a capitalist idea or anything that doesn't go with Mao's ideas of what China should be um, get thrown into a work camp, get thrown into prison, get killed, all that stuff. And so the whole goal is to make, again, the urban areas and the rural areas equal in China. So they fight for that a lot more. And uh, one other thing that they might reject, or they, they not might reject, they rejected or tried to push back against is the radical feminism that was sometimes coming up that we saw in Russia. They really tried to prevent that from happening in, in the Chinese uh, state. Now, uh, last thing to mention with the industrialization here, and this also goes with the collectivization before we jump to the enemy part, is 
Um, some people believed, uh, especially outside in the West, that the communists were going to take better care of the environment. And that was a lie. Uh, they do a really bad job with the environment. You see a lot of environmental disasters happening. The only reason why the U.S. and other people or average citizens in the United States or in the West don't know this is because the government controls the media and everything else. So those reports of economic or, or environmental disasters never get out. So there's a lot of air pollution. Uh, rivers get diverted for dams and that um, leads to less water getting to certain lakes or uh, destroys things all everything behind that dam uh, leads to a lot of erosion from over farming uh, so you get lots of environmental issues here it's not it's not perfect by any sense of the mean um, now uh, last thing here looking for enemies you got to have enemies uh, these these governments both of them are very tribal in that they want, people to feel like they're part of a group and that this group is better than the other groups and if there's anyone that comes in and threatens our group we need to take them out uh, so it's like one tribe versus another tribe and so uh, the US or the U, yeah the USSR the Soviet Union used um, terror tactics and the great purges to take out anyone that had a hint or an inkling of being a capitalist or, or a Democrat uh, or one that would fight for democracy and um, they, they would arrest these people, uh, throw them in gulags, kill them straight up, um, do all that stuff. And uh, they weren't afraid to go after government officials that might be a threat to Stalin or someone else. And so this can lead to some major leadership issues in the Soviet Union. Uh, China, on the other hand, we saw with the Cultural Revolution, they're going to push back against anyone that is, again, not fighting for the original ideas of the revolution, uh, the ideas of communism. And so... Uh, we'll see them be persecuted. Um, people will run around, especially students and soldiers, will walk around with a uh, book known as the Little Red Book of Mao, and um, they will sing the praises of Mao and of communism, and anyone that doesn't agree with that will see their, their lives turn around real quickly. And so that's kind of uh, both these uh, cultures, economic changes, uh, and these new societies that are built by the Soviet Union and China, um, in, in a brief overview, uh, we're going to get to our last part here and looking at then the conflict uh, that takes over the globe known as the Cold War in our last and final session on this.